Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body, and lifestyle. People don't know this. This is crazy. You actually have melatonin receptors on your pancreas, which releases insulin. So the melatonin actually will go and latch onto the pancreas and say, don't release more insulin because it knows you don't need, you're not supposed to need it at night. But then you could say, well, uh, the brain is doing a lot of metabolic functions at night. It still needs, surely it still needs energy and glucose, but the body has already figured out a trick for that. And the brain and the liver are the only two organs that don't require insulin for blood glucose uptake. So they can continue functioning at night, even in a low insulin or low sugar state, which is how it should be. So I'm very excited to be here today with Dr. Jay Corsandi, who is a doctorate snore expert. He's the creator and host of the Best Night Ever podcast. You can find him on Instagram at Sleep Biohacker. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you here, Dr. Jay. Hi, Angela. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you. Um, So I have 101 questions basically for you about sleep um, and some of the crazy stuff that you do on Instagram. But first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and what your specialism is so the listeners can hear. Yeah. So my day job, if you want to call that, is treating patients for what's called sleep disordered breathing. So that's going to be things like snoring, sleep apnea. Uh, These are people who stop breathing multiple times a night, anywhere from five to over a hundred times an hour, they stop breathing for at least 10 seconds. And they're generally very inflamed. They're very sick. And we could talk about that as well on the show. And and what we do is we uh, offer sleep studies and treatments, including CPAPs and dental devices and laser therapies, uh, all to help address the airway so they can reduce the snoring, reduce the apnea, reduce the chronic fatigue and all the other associated symptoms. Uh, So that's the day job. And then my night job is if you want to call it a night job is the sleep biohacking, which you mentioned on Instagram, I'm, I'm sleep biohacker. And that's where I use different supplements, gadgets, routines, technologies, and help optimize my sleep and wellness and health. Okay. Amazing. So I think what we'll do is we'll get gradually more advanced as we go through. Um, but just, I guess, to kind of kick off something I'm sort of interested in a lot of men, <laughs> it sounds horrible, doesn't it? To blame it on the men, but, uh, men frequently snore at night. And, uh, I know I've had experience of being disrupted by a snorer in the bed for people to kind of understand this. Um, I, I looked actually on a weep strap, a client of mine who had, um, he was waking up, he had all these tiny little micro wake ups that he was completely unaware of. And I advised him to see a doctor about sleep apnea, but what's the, how can you tell if you've got sleep apnea, if you haven't tracked it and what's the difference between that and actually just somebody who snores and how can we kind of three questions in one, how can you minimize snoring, but how to know the difference? Right. So at least in the U.S., the numbers are are big. I mean, they say about 100 million people snore and about 40% of those have sleep apnea. So there's a big difference between snoring and sleep apnea. Snoring is basically a constriction of airflow in the airway. It's when we fall asleep, our bodies relax, our muscles relax. We have a big muscle in our head called the tongue, which has got about a 90 degree bend. And what happens at night is as you fall asleep, especially if you're on your back, which is called supine, Gravity kicks in and your tongue is going to want to creep towards the back of the throat. The closer it gets towards the back of the throat and as the air passes, the more those tissues vibrate, that's snoring. When it goes all the way and collapses and hits the back of the throat, that's when you get an obstruction, which is called obstructive sleep apnea. That's when you stop breathing or choking. So 
the way to see if you have that, generally, if you snore, that's one of the signs that you could have sleep apnea, but the only way to identify it properly would be to do what's called a sleep study or sleep test, whether you go spend the night in a laboratory where they put all the wires on you and monitor you, or these days we use a new technology, which is portable. Uh, and they make these uh, devices that are very robust now, very accurate. You can take them home. Ours is a little headband you wear on your head and it'll monitor your sleep and it'll tell you how many hours you slept, how many times per hour you stop breathing, your oxygen levels, your heart rate levels, your body position, brainwave activity, tons of data, very similar to these sleep trackers, but it's a medical device. Okay. And so people who are, um, people who are suffering with sleep apnea, presumably they w you would expect them to have some symptoms, like they must be very tired. Presumably it's hard to get into kind of slow wave deep sleep if you've got these constant micro wake-ups. Absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest uh, problems with snoring and sleep apnea is the comorbidities are going to be elevated blood pressure, uh, hypertension, and type 2 diabetes. Those are the number two. And then excessive daytime sleepiness, fatigue, mood disorders, reflux, teeth grinding, incontinence, multiple waking up at night. Uh, erectile dysfunction, if you want to talk about men as well, too. I've seen so many guys, uh, and it hits around 40 and over. I'd say the almost 75% of my patients are men 40 to 50. And when we hit 40 as men, uh, I call it menopause. And, and what happens is our, our hormone, our testosterone levels start to tank. And generally there's a, there's a spouse, a partner, wife, kids, work, job, stress, school, all these things compound. And then the sleep starts to suffer. And then they end up uh, dysregulation of our hunger hormones, which is leptin ghrelin. And they end up waking up hungry, uh, eating more junk food and carbs throughout the day, gaining more weight, which then makes the sleep even worse. And it becomes this vicious cycle. So the goal is to want to avoid a lot of these symptoms is get the sleep optimized. The hormones will start to regulate again. You'll get a boost in energy and then diet, exercise, nutrition, weight will start to come off. And as weight comes down, that's how you address these issues in more depth. Okay, so you're at greater risk of snoring then if you are overweight, right? Because I, I mean, I had actually, I remember a long time ago, a friend saying to me that the size of a man's neck, his collar size determines. And, and I certainly noticed that with my own husband. At one point he was snoring and he had gone through a stage where he put on a bit of weight. Is there, so mm -hmm. is there a correlation? This is based in science, right? Yes. Yeah, so the, the two things that are going to make it worse overall it's going to be age and weight. As we get older, we lose muscle tone and muscle mass. We get what's called muscle atrophy. So these tissues in the neck and the airway get weaker and more susceptible. Uh, and the other is as we get older, we tend to put on weight. So those two are going to be the biggest contributing factors. Now, the other factors are gonna be you know, temporary weight gain, stuffy nose, sinus issues, alcohol, body position. Those are the kinds of things day to day that can make it worse from one night to another. Okay. Um, and then is there a way, like if, if as you're getting older, you're losing muscle tone, uh, so you're more likely to snore, is there a way of strengthening those muscles? And apart from obviously the weight loss, then minimizing the snoring from that perspective. Yeah. Everyone always asks me this on all the podcasts that I do. There, there is a one way that I'm familiar with. I haven't tried it myself, but it's a, an Aboriginal instrument in Australia called the didgeridoo. And okay. studies have shown if you've learned how to play that, you increase muscle tone in the airway. And it has to do with what's called circular or open breathing and where you're inhaling and exhaling in a cycle. And that helps to strengthen the tone in the, in the airway. Uh, another thing that 
we do here in the office is what's called night laser, which is a laser therapy. And I actually use a laser in the back of the throat, uh, kind of like we talked about before the show, uh, for photobiomodulation. And the laser will hit the soft tissues in the back of the throat, the soft palate, everything that's vibrating back there and cause new collagen formation. Neocollagenesis is what they call it. And then that will help strengthen, tighten, and tone the tissues in the back of the throat. So, so the lasers actually help to strengthen the muscle is what you're saying, but that's an in-clinic treatment that people would need to have done. Correct. That would have to be done by a provider on you. Correct. Okay. And so what you were saying as well is it's associated. Um, now, I've, I've read that snoring, not just sleep apnea, is associated with these comorbidities, things like diabetes, high blood pressure, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Or is it that people with those conditions tend to snore more? I'd say both. I mean, the problem with snoring is, is sleep apnea is considered a medical condition or disease in the U.S. and the States. Snoring isn't. But I would say that snoring is almost as bad of a problem in itself because you're disturbing two people's sleep generally. It's going to be yours and your partner's. You know, those studies have shown that partners of people who snore on average lose an hour of sleep every night. Now, if you're snoring and you live alone, you may not be bothering other people, but it's enough to disturb your brain waves. And, you know, as we go through sleep, we go through stages of sleep. Well, all that loud noise coming out of your mouth is, can knock you out of those deeper stages of sleep and keep you in a lighter stage more through the night, which means you don't get into the REM sleep, you don't get into the deep sleep, and then you don't get the benefits. And then you end up with high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, so on and so forth. Okay, because you're not getting the full night's sleep. Um, And so in terms of sleep architecture, just so people can kind of understand this, um, my understanding is that we, in the, in the initial part of the night, we tend to have, if we've, if we've done the right things to get to sleep effectively, um, we will experience a bit more deep sleep, but we'll go through sort of 90 minute cycles. And then in the sort of middle of the night, we tend to transition out of the deep sleep into more kind of REM sleep and light sleep as well, which people often misunderstand, but is equally important. But can you just explain for people the kind of the ideal sleep architecture, and then we can get into how people would achieve that. I mean, you hit the nail on the head when you said in the beginning there is that if we've done everything right, we'll Mm. go through those stages of sleep because what happens is people don't do the right things throughout the day and then their sleep suffers at night. I always say your best night's sleep starts the morning you wake up and your best morning starts the night before. So you're going to want to focus on how to get through those stages of sleep. Like you said, initially, we're going to have more deep sleep. And then we're going to transition more towards, you know, REM sleep in the early morning hours. And the goal, and a lot of people who wear these trackers to say, well, I get a lot of REM. I don't get a lot of deep. I get a lot of deep. I don't get a lot of REM. And, and I would say the goal is to get sufficient amount of both. And I'm more concerned these days with quality versus quantity. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you should get eight hours of sleep. Uh, I function best at about seven and a half hours. So uh, the goal isn't to try to compartmentalize them into different things as many people want to do. Even I've done that before. The goal is just to see the overall trend and make sure that everything is within its respective, correct, healthy amounts. And in terms of the sort of proportion of the night, would you say that each of deep and REM should be around 25% each? Yeah. 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 That's, that's one, one of the things we measure with my patients is REM sleep. We have an EEG on the sleep study and these people are coming in with 3%, 5%, 0% REM. And, and these are the ones that are going to be depressed. They're going to be on uh, anxiety medications. Uh, they're, they're, they're very 
miserable, sad people. And, and I feel bad for them. And, and this is just like young kids who have sleep apnea as well, too. They express themselves with ADHD and they often get misdiagnosed because people think they're having some crazy fits at school. But what it is, is they're suffering at sleep and that's how they act out. So kids act out with poor sleep by exhibiting ADHD symptoms or ADD symptoms. Adults act out by being depressed. And this is because the REM sleep basically helps with emotional regulation and um, like memory formation as well, right? You kind yes, of memory formation, memory consolidation, hormone regulation. Absolutely. Okay, hormones are important as well <laughs> as part of the REM sleep. Okay. Absolutely. I hadn't realized um, that REM sleep was implicated in hormonal balance. Okay. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> sorry, go on. Yeah, no, there was actually a study done um, a while back where they took college, healthy college university kids. They took 20 of them and they put them in a sleep lab and they did a REM deprivation on them. And what that meant is they, they put sensors on them, monitor their sleep. And as they went into REM sleep, there would be a, a mild buzzer that would go off that would knock them out of REM. It wasn't enough to wake them up, but it would deprive them of REM. And what the study showed that after two weeks, all these healthy college kids started exhibiting type two diabetes symptoms. Oh, wow. So their insulin regulation got thrown out of whack. Gosh. So, the, so if you want to talk about hormone regulation, there you go. Yeah. Wow. Within two weeks. And these are yeah. young people. who Young, really healthy have... college students. Yeah. Okay. And that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're recording this in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, we know that two risk factors for that going the wrong way are hypertension and type two diabetes. Um, and sleep obviously has a profound impact on that. Um, Absolutely. So in terms of like, in terms of improving your REM sleep, I know that alcohol plays a part here because when people say, oh my God, I can't remember what happened the night before. I was so drunk. Uh, actually, it's that they've interfered with REM sleep to such a great extent that those memories haven't been formed. Is that right? Of the night before. That's an extreme alcohol consumption. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But even small amounts of alcohol can impact REM sleep. Yeah, alcohol, people tend to use alcohol as a sedative. Uh, the problem is, is it might help you get to sleep, but once you get to sleep, it's going to take away from the REM sleep, particularly later on at night as well. So you'll be deficient. So I wouldn't recommend it. I try not to drink that much these days. If you are going to drink, I would give yourself at least four hours to metabolize it. And that way that will less likely be a a problem with your sleep. So no alcohol till four hours before sleep. Or at least four hours before. Yeah. Mm, Okay. And then it's a kind of hour per unit as well. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've been out and had a few, you're probably not going to get anywhere close to a good night's sleep. I wish somebody would have told me this 20 years ago when I was in school with alcohol and sleep <laughs> and performance and, and testing. So for people out there that are younger, if you want to excel these days, I would say cut back on that. Cut back on the alcohol. On the alcohol. And so let's talk now then about in terms of your your tips, you were saying that your your sleep starts how well you're going to sleep that night starts with what you do in the morning. And this some of that's going to be around light exposure. Um, mm-hmm. So what's the best way to start your day? I've, you know, I've read some studies that say you should wake up at the same time every day, regardless of when you go to sleep, what would mm-hmm. be your best tips in terms of optimizing that morning routine for sleep? I think you should wake up at the same time, but not regardless of when you go to sleep as a result of when you go to sleep every night. So if you're able to, 
and train your circadian rhythm where you go to sleep and wake up at the same time, then that means you don't need to wake up with an alarm clock anymore, which is one of the best ways to wake up in the morning. And that's what I do these days is I wake up automatically around 6.30 in the morning. And that's because I go to sleep right around 9.30 at night. Uh, within 30 minutes or so, I'm out. And then that helps start the morning off without a buzzing alarm clock, uh, you know, scaring you and waking you up in the morning. You just kind of glide to wakefulness. Uh, mm -hmm. The other things I would say is, like you said, light exposure. First thing, if you can get up in the morning, whether you can get out and catch a sunrise, what that's going to do is it's going to hit your retinal tissue on your eyes. And a lot of people don't know, but your retinal tissue is actually neural tissue. It's an extension of your brain. So you're literally getting sun on your brain by hitting your eyes. And what that does is helps pull up melatonin in the pineal gland. You don't need it in the morning, but you're going to store it until nighttime. So there, therefore, you have more to release. So that's how you get better sleep at night. By your action in the morning the other thing i would say is keep your phone on airplane mode uh don't fire it up and start checking texts and emails and instagram posts and especially now with all this COVID 19 stuff you last thing you want is a high dose of you know anxiety in the morning you're going to want cortisol but the best way to get that is to get the sunrise look at the sky the sky is blue blue light will emit and uh, boost your cortisol level so you have more energy you don't want to get the energy from stressful stuff coming out of your phone Sure, sure, which is easily done, as you say, in this environment. Um, yeah. So when you say sunrise, because I'm always curious about this bit, are you saying that people should be rising with the sun, so actually seeing the sunrise or just going out and experiencing that blue light as soon as they wake up? I say both, whatever you can do. Some days mm -hmm. I make it to catch the sunrise before it's actually come over the horizon, and then that's, that's the ideal time. But if you can't do that, Within, you know, an hour or two of sunrise, if you can get out, just sit in the sun, 10, 15 minutes, as much skin exposure as possible, you're going to get the benefits. But if because you, there's a, if you mm -hmm. get into the sunrise, is there, is there superior benefits for actually seeing it rise? Yeah, I think so. Because what the sunrise is doing is there's a high amount of infrared and there's a very low amount of UV. So when we talk about, like we talked off air uh, about red light therapy and, and things like that, that's when you're getting that huge dose. So the, these red light panels that are out there that are in the 660, 850 nanometer spectrum, they're simulating some of the benefits of the sunrise. But obviously on a sunrise, it's a full spectrum of infrared versus just two wavelengths. So you're going to get the benefits of those wavelengths plus the, all the other ones that science hasn't even identified yet. Yeah. This is the bit that I find really curious living where I do in the UK because um, our, our kind of... British summertime compared to, we've, we've just changed our clocks, compared to the winter is so vastly different. So at the moment, it's not so bad. We're kind of almost on that um, equatorial thing where it's sort of dark around six, seven o'clock. Well, now getting more, now we change clocks, maybe closer to sort of seven thirty-eight, And then it's kind of getting light around 6.30 in the morning. But within a few months, we will quickly arrive at a situation where it's sun, the sun's not setting until 9.30, 10 at night, and then it's rising around 4 a.m. Um, so people really need like block out blinds if they're going. And then when we then revert around to sort of November time and we've moved the clocks again, we like mid-December, it's probably getting dark by about quarter to four in the afternoon. And then it's not getting light until eight o'clock. And so it's almost like to have that constant sleep wake time, if you were to see sunrise and sunset, is very difficult um, to do. But I noticed yeah. actually you need less sleep in the summer somehow, right? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've noticed that as well, too. We have time changes here. It's the most disruptive thing to my sleep these days. I wish they wouldn't do it. There are certain states in the U.S. that don't do time changes, which is nice uh, because that throws my schedule off. It's almost like a simulated jet lag. And, and I've been uh, in the U.K. and I've been in Scandinavia. And yeah, like you said, there's times when the sun's not going down till 10 p.m., and then it's getting up early in the morning. So uh, I think there is a little bit of seasonality to it if you're in a higher you know, latitudes. Uh, but generally, for me, I'm in Los Angeles. It tends to be fairly close and circadian for me. And I have to do less adjusting. But if you're out there, something like that, you're going to want to have block out curtains or blinds, uh, blue light blocking glasses, and uh, start to mitigate a little bit more consciously. Okay, yeah, sure. And you were saying that you... Um you tend to focus more with your patients um, in terms of sleep quality. I recently had um, like whole exome sequencing done of my DNA. And one of the things that came out in terms of what they looked at on sleep was that I was somebody who needed less than seven hours per night is what the report showed, um, which was quite nice in a way because I often do only sleep around seven hours. Um, is this quite individual? I know that, you know, I was also classified as a morning lark. That was like no surprise to me because I kind of worked that out. I'm much more alert and aware in the morning. Um, how big are the kind of genetic variants? Um, and how much would you pay attention to that between individuals? Have you heard of the term chronotype? Yes. Okay. Dr. Michael Bruce's work. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So Michael Bruce is here in LA. He's a friend of mine. He actually sends me patients all the time. And, and he had coined this term chronotype. And I think that's one of the biggest factors in how you should approach your sleep. It's okay. very simple. You can go online, you take that quiz. It'll tell you what kind of animal you are. I think there's a bear, a dolphin, a lion, and a wolf. And this yeah. will say if you're someone who's a early morning person, who's someone who's a late night person, someone who's circadian, which is a bear, which is what I am, normal sunrise, sunset. And then there's the dolphin, which is the more insomniac one because dolphins sleep with half their brain on, half their breath off. Uh, so I say that's a good way to kind of start diving into your genetic component of how you should sleep and when you should sleep without having to do a test. But then, yes, like you said, there are tests that will tell you how or what is predicted based off your genetics. That still doesn't mean, you know, you still might sleep differently. I mean, that's the whole point of all this epigenetics is we have a set of rules in our DNA, but we can also modify them or make mm -hmm. them express differently by how we act and behave and control our environment. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting actually, because I did um, Dr. Bruce's questionnaires before. What, what animal were you? Do you remember? And I was a lion. So a hundred percent. And then that was actually before I then saw what was on my genetic result. And so they were absolutely aligned, uh, which shows you how the quality of his questionnaire. Yeah. He's very uh, good. He's a sharp mm, guy. Yeah. Really, really interesting. And he, he actually tells you kind of the best time to do everything, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. uh, based on your um, circadian. So we talked a bit about um, the morning. In terms of the evening, we've discussed the fact that not drinking alcohol is a good idea, but also what I've noticed on my aura ring, and I know you use one, is that even like late night eating will, both alcohol and late night eating will elevate my heart rate by around 10 beats per minute. Now, I've got a question here is that's obviously my body is then that's <clears throat> processing the food, it's digesting if I've had a late night, say for example, with friends. But what effect is that actually having? If you, if you were to do that consistently, it's affecting the rhythm of the heart. Is that actually putting pressure on the heart or is it just disrupting the quality of the sleep? 
the time to, when we're sleeping is a time for the body to rest and relax and rejuvenate. I call it the three R's. So you want to give it as much energy and resources available to do what it needs to do. And you're exactly right. Whenever we eat late, me included, my C elevated heart rate all the time. Uh, but beyond the heart uh, is one of the other things that I don't think a lot of people understand is eating late is there's a relationship between two hormones at night that people don't know. And that's insulin and melatonin. And they have an antagonistic relationship, meaning they don't like each other. So what happens is if you eat late at night, you release insulin to take the, the blood glucose levels down. But the problem with that is that will block melatonin release, which means it's going to be harder for you to fall asleep later. And the opposite is, let's say you eat early enough at night, which I always say eat around sunset or within two hours of bed. And then your insulin levels will spike early enough, but then they'll dip back down. And then there's a chance for the melatonin to rise around 9 p.m., which is when we want to start winding down for bed. And then all is good. Mm. So if you're able to control those two hormones, that's when you're going to get bigger benefits. And that's why you shouldn't eat late at night. That's very interesting because I hadn't realized the link between insulin and melatonin, but I was aware of the fact that in insulin, if insulin is present, then it can disrupt the grease, the sorry, the release of growth hormone, mm -hmm. which also affects things like your skin health. So beauty sleep does exist, but also the health of your gut because growth hormone is used to repair the gut lining. Correct? Yes. Yeah. And in fact, if people don't know this, this is crazy. You actually have melatonin receptors on your pancreas, which releases insulin. So the melatonin actually will go and latch onto the pancreas and say, don't release more insulin because it knows you don't need, you're not supposed to need it at night. But then you could say, well, uh, the brain is doing a lot of metabolic functions at night. It still needs, surely it still needs energy and glucose, but the body has already figured out a trick for that. And the brain and the liver are the only two organs that don't require insulin for blood glucose uptake. So they can continue functioning at night, even in a low insulin or low sugar state, which is how it should be. Ah, makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in terms of photobiomodulation, because I've seen you with um, some, <laughs> or with a very intriguing hat on, on your Instagram feed, uh, mm -hmm. where you actually got red light going straight into your, into your head. Uh, what were you doing there? It looked to me like you might be encouraging hair growth, <laughs> which is a woman I'd be interested in. But um, what, what's going on there and why would you use that? So I use red light therapy for all kinds of different things. Uh, I, I've got panels. I've got handheld devices. The thing that you're talking about is something a friend of mine brought over. We had a BYOB party. It was bring your own biohacking. So we all brought different gadgets over to my house and we were just playing around with them. And he brought this, this device. It's a, it looks like a bike helmet. And then it's got these LED lights uh, that are in the infrared spectrum. And this is a device that's coming from the neurofeedback world. Uh, I think it's called Cytonsys. And it's a very obscure company, uh, very strange technology, and I don't fully understand it, but basically I was using it to activate different regions of your brain. So this is something like if you go uh, and get a QEEG done where they'll map your brain out in activity levels, then you can go and specifically tailor certain regions in your brain to get activated with this infrared spectrum. Uh, but if I grow hair too, that's not a bad problem either. <laughs> 
<laughs> as a result. Um, so was that going to be basically enhancing the quality of your sleep? I mean, that's the goal. Whenever I do all these different things is to see how it affects sleep with the ultimate goal of enhancing my sleep or optimizing it. Fortunately for me, I've been very optimized these days in my sleep. So I don't have a lot of more room to go. Mm -hmm. Um, but if it takes away from my sleep, I'm certainly not going to do it again. And, and I did that one more to see if it helped with mood and, and uh, anxiety and, and things like that. I didn't do it long enough. Uh, and I think that's a more of a practitioner level neurofeedback device. So I was just playing around with it. I probably need a little bit more instruction to get the full benefits from that one. Okay, cool. But red light all day long is, is a fantastic therapy. Yes. Yeah. Do you use red light in the evening as well? Do you use your panels or... I've been doing it both in the morning and in the evening, but if I find if I do it too late in the evening, it could be more disruptive to my sleep. So I, I, if I don't get it by around sunset, if I don't catch a real sunset, I'll try and do the red light panel. And, and if I don't get that in, then I'm not going to do it. Yeah. What are your thoughts in terms of like, can you overdo um, red light therapy? Because there's kind of a bell curve, isn't there, as I understand it, but then there's also maybe a danger that's overstimulating in the way it affects the mitochondria. I've heard that as well too. Uh, it has to do, I think, both with time and distance because mm -hmm. I, you see these people on Instagram where they're sitting in front of this red light panel, well, they're like a meter away. Uh, and from what I've heard and all the experts I've talked to is that the further away you get, it, it's reduced by the, the square. Uh, so if you're going to dose it right because you have to understand light is is like a drug so sitting in front of these panels is like taking drugs so you want to dose it correctly i generally stay about a foot about 12 inches away and i do it for about 20 minutes i find that if i do more i don't feel any or benefits and the research shows like you said there's a bell curve uh overdoing it you can risk you know, mitochondrial damage, uh, it's, you know, because mitochondria are like little batteries. So it's like if you overcharged your electronic device. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, you want to dose it. You don't want too little, but you don't want too much. So it, it's a matter of playing around with your specific device, the distance and the time. Yeah. And that depends as well, doesn't it, on the strength of the device. I know I was interviewing, I use Red Light Rising. It's a light in the UK. It's got zero flicker and it's quite a bit stronger than some of the others, for example. So then you need less time. Correct. Um, in terms of looking at energy then, we were also, before we started um, recording this, we were chatting about earthing. And I know that you've actually been out like with your feet on the grass and actually measuring um, that. Can you tell people about that? Because a lot of people are a bit like, really, earthing? Um, can you explain for people and, and what your results have shown? Yeah, so I've been following this guy, Clint Ober, uh, who wrote the earthing book and, uh, his research was compelling. I read his book and, and I've listened to him on podcasts. And from that point forward, I really started to connect more towards this whole idea of earthing or grounding. Uh, for me personally, I have sheets on my bed that are connected to the wall and the grounding port. And what that does is the, these sheets are conductive. And, uh, when I touch them or sleep on them, I can actually see my body voltage measured on a voltmeter go down significantly. So I knew that was happening and everyone always says, Oh, go for a walk on grass, barefoot, go to the beach. So I did an experiment. You can see on my sleep biohacker profile on Instagram, where I took a video of my body voltage standing off the grass on my flip flops and then taking my shoes off, putting my foot on the grass and instantaneously the voltage goes down. And, and why do we want to do this is because as throughout our day, as we go about our, our day, we build up 
positive charge. We accumulate this, this static electricity. And, and the problem with that is our bodies are meant to get rid of that. Otherwise, we get inflammation. And inflammation, as you know, over time can become disease and pain. So as we need to discharge. And if we're in shoes all day, going about, sitting, standing, walking on carpets, you know, like that, if you go to hit the, the elevator button in, in Vegas, close to me, I always used to get a charge as a kid. And, and now I know that these are things that aren't good. Uh, so the more I can connect to the ground or the earth, the more I can get rid of this charge. So I'm grounded almost 12 hours a day, whether it's, you know, you know, eight hours on my bed and then I've got pads by my computer. I've got a mouse pad that's also conductive that's connected to the, the wall. So I'm always looking for ways to get rid of this charge. And this is an issue because we're exposed to so many EMFs now in terms of everything. We're using a lot of electronic devices. <laughs> We've got Wi-Fi more so than obviously we would have been even like 20, 30 years ago. I think so. It's a combination of all the, the EMF exposure. It's a combination of just, you know, day-to-day -day going, it, especially it's a big issue when you travel, uh, when you're up in a, in a jet plane at 35,000 feet and getting exposed to ionizing radiation, uh, all these things accumulate in the body and these weren't there you know, hundred years ago. So we, we need to figure out ways to, to mitigate them. Now I always tell people all of these biohacking and wellness and anti-aging stuff is irrelevant if you live on a tropical island with a biodynamic farm and no cell towers. I mean, this is all irrelevant because you're just living connected to nature as it is. But unfortunately, we're all in this digital world with 5G and pandemic viruses. <laughs> so you got to figure out what can you do to, to keep yourself safe and healthy. Yeah, for sure. And what are your thoughts in terms of, I know that you're wearing wired headphones now in terms of the radiation, you know, we, I don't think we've got 5g yet here, but we've got 5g, but then also there's Bluetooth as well. Some people yeah. seem less concerned about Bluetooth and it's um, effects than others. So personally, I, I don't use Bluetooth headphones. Whenever I see people with those little Apple things there, I, I almost want to go up to them and tap them on the shoulder and say, you might want to reconsider that. Uh, but I also don't want to get over caught up in the fear element of it too, as well, because had I not known about all the potential effects of EMF, I still go about my day and do about my things uh, unaware. Now that I'm aware you have to be able to balance that awareness level. Uh, and the, because the more you have dive deep into that fear, the more that can manifest itself in you. And then you can actually become more sensitive to it. I, I tend to, you know, I drive by cell phone towers. Initially a year ago, I was freaking out every time I drove by a cell phone tower, I would try and cover my face in the car, but it's like, you know, what are you going to do? You either give into that fear or you just tell yourself, you know what, you're safe, you're healthy. It's not as bad as you think you're going to be just fine. So there is a mindset element to it as well, too, that we need to Remember. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And in terms of like sleep disruption from EMFs, um, I always say to people, turn off your Wi-Fi at night. Um, what do you, what do you know? What do you see in terms of how it might disrupt the quality of people's sleep? Yeah. I tell the people the same thing too. And one of the easiest way to do the, the Wi-Fi is I have my Wi-Fi on a timer. It literally turns off at night when I go to sleep and it turns on in the morning because we don't need Wi-Fi while we're asleep. Uh, for me, it's tough to say. I, I don't think my sleep got affected physically or, or measurably different. 
uh, I was sleeping well both ways, but uh, just peace of mind for me. It was just mm-hmm. I'm not having that thing on. I used to have a smart meter on my house. I actually had the city of LA come and switch it up back to a, you know, a dumb meter, uh, one of the old analog ones. Uh, fortunately, I'm not as EMF sensitive as other people, but I'm also proactive. I, I don't want to have problems down the road that I see in other people. So uh, I would say, yes, turn the EM, uh, the Wi-Fi router off and not, uh, put your phone on self, uh, on airplane mode as well too. Those are the two biggest things you could do. I sleep with a grounding mat or a pad on my bed as well. Uh, and those are all ways to uh, mitigate as much as possible. I mean, I know people who sleep in, you know, Faraday cage sleeping bags. I mean, you could go in where, you know, silver lined, hoodies and, and, and uh, beanie caps and you know, EMF underwear and stuff. So you can take it to all kinds of different levels, but you know, one step at a time and see what works best for you. And if people want to just get started by going out and grounding and earthing, what do you recommend in terms of how long, how often? Yeah, uh, as much as possible. Uh, I would say a good 20 minutes is, is nice to get the body flushed. People ask me, you know, what to do during the day. Uh, one of the, I know we talked about the morning and we talked about night, but afternoon, I always tell people try and go for a walk for 20 to 30 minutes during your lunch break with as much skin exposure as possible, uh, both from the, the meditative aspect. You can just put on headphones, listen to some music or a podcast or just meditate uh, from the, the movement aspect of it, where you're just going to move and, and flush out some toxins, you know, uh, your joints are going to get a little workout, you get a little bit of blood flow. Uh, and then from the, the grounding element is if you can go to a park, take your shoes off and walk on that grass, you're going to get that benefit as well too. So, and you're also going to get sun exposure, which is vitamin D. So it's a combination of things. And it's as simple as a 20, 30 minute walk barefoot in a park on a lovely day. Mm-hmm. If you can do that. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. There's so many health benefits to that. And it's um, so simple. And people always say, Oh, well, you know, what's the next best biohacking gadget or wellness thing, or these are so expensive, all these supplements and all these uh, electronics. I go, well, this stuff is free, you know, going for a walk. Mm. It doesn't cost anything. No, it doesn't. It's true. And what about, um, what are your thoughts on heat? So I know like, um, a lot of biohackers will sleep on something like the chili pad to keep their body temperature cool. Um, they might take, you know, I've heard, you know, having, we give babies a warm bath when they go to bed. Um, and that actually helps them sleep because then you get that kind of thermal dump after a hot shower or warm bath. Um, do you engage in any of those things? Yeah. Uh, so there's two things that regulate our sleep the most. One is light and one is temperature. So we talked about light, you know, obviously you want to stay away from blue light emitting things, your phone, iPad, TVs, things like that at night. Uh, my house, all my bulbs turn to red at night. So I don't have to worry about that as well. And I can also change settings on my phone. So it's red or I can wear glasses. The other is temperature. Uh, they say the best temperature to sleep at is 68 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what the Celsius is that or colder. Uh, I don't like to have a super cold house. So I use um, something called a chili pad. And I also use something called a bed jet, which is my, my favorite biohack in the universe. And, and what that is. The bed jet is, people say, what's your favorite? That's my favorite. And what it is, is it's like a chili pad. Chili pad uses water on a pad underneath you. The bed jet is actually a a little fan, a box with a fan, and it's blowing air into a sheet above you downwards. It'll still do hot or it'll do cold. The benefit of it is if you you get the cooling, but you also get the evaporating. 
so you get a drier sleep, which you know I tend to heat up and it can get a little sweaty at night. So uh, the bedjet is fantastic. It's a lot faster too. Like literally, I can hit on on the thing within 30 seconds. I've got a hot toasty bed versus five to 10 minutes with a chili pad to get to temperature. So that's my number one favorite hack is, the, is, is a bed cooling system, particularly a bed jet with, a, with the air. Is it, is it noisy? It's like a white noise. It's not terrible. I have it under the bed, underneath my mattress in the, in the far corner. Um, it's not too bad. I also have a fan in my room as well too. That, that's called, it's from a company called Hypo Air, which is a hospital grade. Uh, it's got um, UV light and it's got, I think, five layers of, filtration and HEPA and all these things. So uh, between the fan and that, I mean, that's the white noise I have and doesn't bother me. Doesn't bother you. I mean, white noise actually helps some people, doesn't it? Some people um, it does, yeah. Mm. And what about any kind of supplements that you take or that you use with your patients? Um, what are the key, like, what would be your top five things? You've obviously mentioned light and morning, evening routines. What other things can people do that are struggling to sleep? Uh, one of the things that I've been doing lately that's been fantastic, both for a sleep perspective and for a health perspective is an infrared sauna. I know it's not a supplement, but well, I guess in almost in a way it is, you know, you're getting uh, heat, uh, and I'm doing a sauna usually in the afternoon or evening, and I'm getting a full body sweat, a detox, heavy metals coming out that will actually help with sleep at night too, because I'll get into a little bit of state of dehydration, uh, less chances of me waking up to use the restroom at night as well too. A lot of people say I need to wake up and go pee in the bathroom uh, in the middle of the night. Well, now that problem is eradicated. So uh, a hot sauna therapy would be great, infrared sauna, or if you can go to your local health facility, although these days all the gyms and health clubs are shut down, but I'm fortunate to have one in my house. So other than that, uh, different things, a yoga a practice, that's what I do. I, I try to do it every day. I was doing hot yoga a lot in a studio, but now I'm just doing it at home, uh, some kind of movement, uh, and then supplements. People can experiment with the biggest one out there, which is melatonin. Uh, I tend to not use it only unless I'm traveling and then it's for jet lag, mm -hmm. but there's uh, L-theanine, there's 5-HTP, there's valerian, there's uh, passion flower, there's uh, skull cap. I mean, there's so many different things. I tend to not use any of those because they tend to make my sleep worse because I'm very optimized. But for people who are not, then I say take advantage of those because you want to try and get your sleep as optimal as possible so your body can heal so you can then not need those down the road. Yeah, yeah, for sure. These can be helpful. Um, in the UK, actually, you can't, you can't get melatonin without a doctor's prescription. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Yeah, really different here. So I know when I've been traveling, I've bought it, like in the US, for example, if I'm trying to get over jet lag. But here, you, you have to get a prescription for it. It's quite, um, quite rare. Well, there's a, there's a thing here called the alpha stim, which is one of the things I use and that's cranial electrotherapy stimulation. It's these little ear clips that go on your ear and it sends electricity across your brain and it entrains your brain into an alpha state. So it's like forcing you to meditate basically. And it's a, it's a medical device in the States. You need a prescription. I write the prescription for my patients in the, in the UK and the EU. It's over the counter. You can go buy it on your own. Really? Okay. Alpha yeah. Stim. yeah. Alpha stim is very cool. You can go and buy that. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and HRV, you, you, you've got your biostrap and your aura. Are they pretty similar in terms of, and can we talk a little bit about HRV and how people can better understand that? You know, it's funny. Yeah, they're, they're both pretty similar in the data that they give me. Uh, they're off a few points, but HRV is something that I've been working on. My, my deep sleep, my REM sleep, light, light sleep, all that is good. Uh, my HRV is not the greatest, at least okay. for what I think it should be. Uh, I, it's something that 
I'm working on. Uh, I found the best way to work on HRV is through meditation and breath work. In fact, the best way is uh, a breathing exercise where you're breathing six seconds in, six seconds out. With no holds, just six in, six out. Correct, correct. No holds, yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm trying that. I'm actually going to try a new hack in the next couple of nights. I'm, I was looking online before we got on this call uh, at, at some other devices. What I do is I tape my mouth shut at night as well too. So I'm going to be playing with some uh, a new thing yet. I, I, I can't say yet, but it's something new I've been playing with that uh, I'm looking to boost my HRV score. And HRV is something that's, as you know, it's a indication of our, our heartbeat. It's called interbeat intervals. And, and the Generally, the, the higher the number, uh, the more uh, parasympathetic activation, the less stress we have, the more adaptable we are towards our environment, the lower, the more we tend to be stressed or tend to be recovering as well too. So your HRV can be low because you did a hard workout as well, or it could be low because you're very stressed out. So you have to figure out where the source is coming from. Then you can work on making it better or at least following the trends. I mean, the goal isn't to have an HRV of 100 or 150. The goal is to have what's optimal for you. But mine's, yeah, I, mean, I think, a little low. Kind of, yours is low, is it? Because that's yeah. where I get confused because some people will post, like, I think Ben Greenfield's HRV is really high, for it's example. It's like 200 or something. It's <laughs> yeah, crazy. It's like amazing. And then there'll be other people, I don't know if it was Peter or Tim, but there'll be other people I follow who actually their HRV is much lower. So how much is that? Because people then get competitive. They want to really get their HRV high. Um, yeah. Is there a difference between men and women? And is there a difference between individuals? Like could, you know, could 40 or 50 be healthy for one person, but not for another, for example? I think it's completely individual, depending on the person, depending on their environment, depending on their lifestyle, depending on their diet, their genetics, uh, you know, mine's, I think my average HRV is like 30, which, and my wife's is like 120. So it, 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 she's very sedentary and she just, uh, you know, she doesn't do much. And I'm here doing yoga and exercises, <laughs> nutrition and supplements and red light. I mean, everything. And I can't even get close. So uh, it's still kind of a, a little bit mysterious out there for me. And I, I'm still trying to figure it out, but you know, everybody's individual. The, the goal I think is to, to identify what yours is at see if it's in the, within the range and then see how it tra and track it. You know, like you said, these aura ring and biostrap, they all give you that data so you can work on improving. And then a kind of last question I have for you um, is the link between sleep and Alzheimer's. So um, part of the, what I found out when I had my genetics uh, tested was that I have one copy of the APOE4 gene. So that puts me at a greater risk um, of Alzheimer's. What, um, and obviously, as you say, right, you say, it's all in the epigenetics and the expression of it. What are your thoughts in terms of how much sleep can protect you against that? And because I know like the brain sort of washes itself in sleep. What, what's important here that people need to be paying attention to? So uh, I'll tell you a story here. Uh, personally, for me, I'm dealing with the effects of Alzheimer's with my dad. Uh, he's in an Alzheimer's facility Sorry to hear that. and yeah, it, it's a, it's a terrible disease. Uh, it's even worse now when I go to see him, he doesn't recognize me anymore as opposed to even a year or two ago. Uh, so to see someone decline that fast and, and, and just basically become a zombie is a, is a horrible thing. And that's one of the reasons I know we were talking before why I do this is because I don't want to go down that road because a, I don't want to be that person and B, I don't want to put that burden on my family because it's a terrible thing for 
my mom, me, my brother, all the extended family to, to see him in that condition. So, and I know growing up, he would snore a lot. And a lot of us in this demographic knew back in the day when people snored, we would just kind of discount it. Oh, well, he just snores or she just snores, no big deal. But my gut tells me that he was having a lot more issues than we suspected. And that accumulates over time, years and years and years. And then it manifests in these neurocognitive decline. So I, I don't, it's tough. I don't like to, to see that deterioration. And that's why I get so passionate with my patients and say, look, do you have kids? Do you want to be there for their wedding? Do you want to end up in an Alzheimer's facility? And in fact, it, this is when they start to wake up and recognize that maybe you don't want to go down that road and sleep is a huge effect, a huge determining factor. Uh, in fact, there was a study shown, and then this is my dentist side talking that just recently that people with Alzheimer's and dementia have the same bacteria in their brain as people with gum disease. It's called P. gingivalis. And one of the ways it can get there is by traveling retrograde through what's called the trigeminal nerve, which is one of the cranial nerves that comes from your brain down and then branches into your teeth and gums. And if you have poor oral care, oral hygiene, you can actually accelerate the chances of you getting Alzheimer's or dementia. In fact, so dental hygiene, good oral care, keep the bacteria out, good sleep hygiene, because it poor sleep, and studies have shown this, a poor sleep will accelerate Alzheimer's and dementia by 10 years. So okay. and this that's is why I do what I in do. In terms of duration or in terms of like, I remember, you know, Margaret Thatcher, a really famous prime minister in, the, in, in Britain, she, she said famously that she only needed four hours of sleep. And I think like Dr. Michael Bruce says that it, you're more likely to be struck by lightning than fall within the genetic pool of people who actually really require that. Um, and obviously she did end up with, um, dementia. There's just like one example. Um, but is it, is it more about the quality or the length in terms of protecting yourself? I think it's both. Yeah. I think you want to have a proper amount of sleep time-wise and you want to have good quality sleep and whether it's stemming from sleep disorder breathing, which is snoring and sleep apnea, which is an easy low hanging fruit to fix. I mean, if you have it, I could, I could fix people within 48 hours after a test, I can get them on a machine that night and, and their lives have changed. So snoring and sleep apnea is a huge one. And then the other is going to be lifestyle. It's going to be all the stuff we're talking about, light exposure. I mean, there's three pillars of health. It's nutrition, movement, and sleep. And if you can get those three in sync, then your chances of developing any chronic disease, whether it's elevated, you know, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, or neurocognitive decline goes way down. So, so that's ultimately the whole goal of all this. Yeah, which is the exact same things, right? Actually, with this virus going around, if you're protecting yourself in, those, in that way, you're also going to be protecting your health outcomes if you do happen to catch it. Absolutely. That's one of the things that I've been doing since I'm not seeing patients right now because of the government man mandates. Uh, I'm focusing on keeping my health as optimized as possible. Uh, doing the sun exposures, doing the supplements, doing the exercises, doing the hot uh, sauna therapies, doing cold ice plunges. So th these are all my daily routines right now. And then on top of that, you know, some mindfulness practices and meditations, uh, just to stay standard, centered, grounded, healthy, ride this thing out and then come come out stronger on the other side. 
Yeah, for sure. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm doing with my, with my clients, albeit over now, over Zoom calls like this. Yeah. Um, before you go, you've mentioned supplements a couple of times. What supplements do you take on a daily basis? You know, it varies. And I always tell people there's no single supplement that you should be doing every single day all the time. Uh, you should cycle and, and whatever you're taking, you should take a couple of days off. But for me, generally right now, I'm taking a vitamin D supplement, a D3 K2 supplement, uh, astaxanthin, uh, some, I'm doing collagen, which is, I don't know if you call that a supplement, but vitamin C, uh, fish oils, magnesium, lithium. Uh, I'm just trying to think of all these different ones and NAD nasal spray, uh, zinc and, and a couple other things I can't remember. I usually do about 10, 15 supplements a day. So it, it, it varies. A pretty similar list to, to me, but, um, lithium, what are you using the lithium for? So lithium is something that I learned about from a John Gray podcast that I heard. He's the guy who wrote the men are from Mars, women are yeah. from Venus. Uh, and it's, it's a salt that we're all deficient. It's kind of like magnesium, but it's like the secret one that people don't know about. Uh, and he mentioned taking it and, you know, generally historically people think of lithium as you've gone mad. It's for, uh, uh, bipolar disease, but this is called lithium orotate, uh, and it's a very low dose. And this is something that helps regulate the mood. Uh, and, and it's more for anxiety, mood, uh, general mental well-being. And, and I take one of those every single day. And ever since I took it, uh, it's been, you know, profound in, in terms of just mood stability, uh, general calm and ease. Uh, and I'm a big fan of it. I, I ordered one. I sent it to my mom. I had my wife take it. So it's what, something what that a lot of that do you take? I think it's a 10 milligram. I'm not sure. But if you go on Amazon, type in lithium or orotate, uh, you'll see it there. It's not very expensive either. I think it's like 15 bucks for okay. a, a month supply. Yeah. What time of day do you take it? I generally take all my supplements either morning or by lunchtime. Uh, I don't like to take stuff at night just because that tends to, uh, mess my sleep up more. I don't want to be metabolizing nutrients in the middle of the night. I'd rather get them in through, throughout the day. Some of them work with sun activation like vitamin D. If you take that and then get sun exposure, it uh, activates it even more. So I try to stick in morning or lunchtime. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Well, you've, yeah. Sh you've shared so much there. Where can people <laughs> find out more about you apart from, well, your Instagram is um, at sleep biohacker, right? Correct. Where, where else can people find more and follow your content? Yeah, so it's a lot of fun you, as well, I must say. Thank you. Yeah. And so if you, if you uh, want to see more, you, like you said, you can check out Sleep Biohacker. Uh, I also host my own podcast called Best Night Ever. Uh, you can either type that in anywhere where you get your podcast or my name, J, Dr. J Corsandi. Uh, you can also, if you're interested in more learning about sleep disorder breathing, you can follow me on my Instagram, Snore Experts. Uh, or the website snoreexperts.com or the Facebook. Uh, I'm all over the place. Uh, but generally, I tend to be hanging out right now mostly in my Sleep Biohacker account just because that's been the most fun and exciting and rewarding and, and, and just cool to share with people. Yeah, it's a fun account. I'll link to all of that in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Angela, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources, and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at angelafosterperformance.com.
You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimise your mind, body and lifestyle.